Welcome to the show, and thanks for checking us out. My guest today is author Christopher Hilton. He has written an amazing book here, uh, The Spectacular Rise, Fall, and Rebirth of Hair Metal. So obviously, if you're a listener of the show, you know that I love hair metal and many of the artists of that era. I've had many of them on the show, so I thought I knew everything about uh, hair metal, but I've actually learned a lot from reading this book. It's over 400 pages, and it starts in the beginning and works all the way up to the present day. And there was just a lot of great little nuggets in here, and we're really just scratching the surface of the book today. So do yourself a favor, order the book on Amazon, check it out. I think it's a good read for a diehard fan like myself, but also for someone who knows nothing about hair metal. And we're just going to hit on some of the highlights in this interview it's a very fun conversation with Christopher Hilton. Enjoy. Welcome, Chris Hilton, to the Chuck Shoot Podcast. How are you? Oh, I'm good, Chuck. Hey, thanks for having me on. It's an honor and a privilege. Yeah, this is great. I really enjoyed this book. Uh, we're going to get to that. But yeah, I just want to talk a little bit um, about your background. Obviously, you're a huge hair metal fan. I would almost say you're like a purist, like even more that people think I am a real big hair metal. But I mean, there's like things where you're like, yeah, I didn't like this album because it sounded not hair metal enough. So, but one thing that's kind of a mystery to me is just your background, other than you're a hardcore fan of the genre. Like I need your origin story. Like how or why did you become such a fanatic? Cause I'll just, I'll tell you my background. I grew up in Seattle in the nineties and I just became a hair metal fan at the cusp, like 91, 92. And it was, you know, and then obviously ever all my friends listen to Alice in Chains and all that kind of thing. So what is your story? Like did you grow up during this era? Did you have a lot of hair metal friends? Did you go to hair metal concerts? Or were you like me, just, you know, in a bedroom reading Metal Edge and rocking out? Well, maybe a little bit of both. Uh, okay. I was, I guess I really entered the era in the mid 80s. So I wasn't, uh, I was born in 74. Okay. Uh, so I was a little young to really be there at the start of this on the Sunset Strip in, in 1980 or 1981. Uh, I came on in the middle of the 80s, and uh, it was a rather, uh, you know, inauspicious entry, I guess. In my, you know, prior to my teen years in the earlier 80s, I was actually more of a fan of pop music. You know, whatever was on the radio, a top 40, whatever I was exposed to at the time, you know, Hugh, Hugh Lewis in the News or Billy Idol, Loverboy, Brian Adams. I mean, heck, let's be candid. I even listened to Cindy Lauper when I was nine years old, I think. Wow. Uh, but I think it was 1986, uh, about a year after its release, a friend played me a cassette of Motley Crue's Theater of Pain. Okay. I said, hey, you know, this this is a little different, right? Well, what's yeah. going on here? And I think my real moment of truth by far uh, didn't really come till probably a year after that. Uh, I don't really have many clear childhood memories for whatever it's worth, uh, but I do vividly remember the first time I heard Welcome to the Jungle uh, from Guns N' Roses' a debut album, Appetite for Destruction. Our junior high bus driver would always let the cool kids, uh, not me, mind you, uh, submit their <laughs> favorite cassettes on the way to the ride to school. You could bring your cassette, the bus driver would plug it in. And I'll never forget the feeling I had when I heard that song's, you know, dramatic, haunting opening and that wicked chugging guitar riff, not to mention, you know, Axl Rose comes in with this snarling vocal styling. And, you know, we were stuttering that phrase, watch it bring you to your knees. And I was like, whoa, what is this? I'd never heard anything like that on Top 40 radio that I knew about. Uh, and it was it was all hair metal from there, all 80s hard rock. Uh, you so, know, couldn't get enough of it. Just yeah. absolutely lived and breathed it, for better or worse, for the last 30-some years. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, it's 
this book tells the, the story. You have no more information than anyone I know. So did you, were you in a big city? Were you able to go to and attend concerts or? I was about 40 minutes north of uh, downtown Philadelphia. So okay. at that time there was a, the Spectrum Center. Okay. And yeah, starting about uh, 13, 14 years old, I saw every band that came through town. And oh. at that time, you know, that would be probably 10, 11 shows a year. So my parents were very gracious in letting me uh, head down to the Spectrum uh, with whoever would be kind enough to take me and see all these bands. And, you know, ever since then, I've been lucky enough to see, you know, a, a good percentage of them every year since that time. You know, so you had, see, this was, yeah, this is why I'm so uh, jealous of people that grew up in this era. Like you actually had friends that listened to the same kind of music and you could go to concerts and you guys are both enjoying these kinds of, yeah. Cause that was like so rare for me. You know, it usually was like a, a girlfriend at the time would tolerate it and go with me or something or I'd go by myself, you know? So well, you have some friends, right? I mean, yeah. as a hair metal fan, you're always going to be somewhat of an outcast, even at its peak. Uh, right. You know, and I had a lot less friends that wanted to accompany me to anything like that after 1991. That's uh, what I was going to say, because you stuck with it. I'm guessing a lot of the other people started listening to Grunge or Matchbox 20 or, you know, Adult Contemporary or whatever. So, but yeah, let's break down the book here. So chapter one, you break up, you, you break down the term hair metal, which you say you don't like it, uh, but you also kind of need something to distinguish what this music is from regular heavy metal or, or, uh, uh, hard rock, I guess you'd say. Yeah, this is a very, uh, controversial, but important topic, right? I mean, for those who have read the book, uh, the first page of the first chapter starts off and says, I have a confession to make. I hate the term hair metal. That's the first sentence of the book. Yeah. Uh, and that's bizarre, right? Because if I hate the term, why would I lavish the idiom as the title and reference it so much? Uh, and it's really a bipolar kind of thing. Uh, most people, I mean, the average fan would be surprised to know that the term hair metal wasn't even invented until years after the genre's heyday, which mm -hmm. is generally considered to be 1986 to 1991. Uh, up until that point, the music was all hard rock or even heavy metal. Uh, people today couldn't believe it, but in 1988, bands like Poison and Warrant were heavy metal. Uh, right. Some used the term glam metal to find, but it was all heavy metal. Hair metal wasn't invented until really after grunge, you know, or during grunge. People needed a more disparaging, pejorative term, uh, hair metal, implying that the genre was incredible or it wasn't about the music or it was about hair or, uh, you know, style with no substance. And of course, the bands hated this. And who can blame them? Because for the most part, I mean, this just, just wasn't true. I mean, sure, there were some bands, there's always going to be an exception. But for the most part, these were highly skilled musicians. Uh, yeah. The music was much harder to play and sing than something like grunge or alternative. Uh, you know, even the, the things that tend to, tend to stick out, like I always use examples, you know, CC DeVille from Poison, the guitarist from Poison is like the signature hair metal goofball to the average observer. Uh, but, you know, he was classically trained guitarist or a band like Winger. Uh, you know, these are classically trained musicians. Uh, Kip Winger, you know, has, has won a Grammy for, for writing a, a ballet score. Uh, even a song like 17, right? Juvenile lyrics aside. Uh, you know, 17 is a fairly intricate, complicated song to play. You're not just going to jump up as a bar band and bang out the riff to 17. At least I've never seen anybody do it. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, like it or not, now, 30 some years later, uh, hair metal as a term has come to be, for better or worse, really like a universal identifier for this type of music. It's clear to the audience. When I thought about titling the book, you know, I could have used the term mm -hmm. glam metal, but then I thought, well, people could think this book is about David Bowie or Alice Cooper or the New York Dolls. And glam metal, I'm not sure, is that much better, right? It's still glam. Right, still yeah. Glam. They don't like that. Um, Did you ever hear the term butt rock? 
Because that's what they called it when I was in Seattle. I, I had long hair. If I wore Metallica shirts and Guns N' Roses, oh, you're a butt rocker. You're, and then like, yeah. I, when I remember I, saying that to Mark Scott from Trickster, and he go, he laughed. He'd never heard that term. And this was just like I've a couple heard years them ago. All, probably, and there's quite a few out there. Yeah. Um, but it was, you know, how do we convey clarity to the the, the reader? And I cringed at including this term as the book's title, mm-hmm. uh, not only because you know you're offending half the audience of uh, the bands at least uh, for legitimate reasons. But again, when someone says hair metal, again, we can like it or not today, even like hair nation on XM radio. I mean, you know what you're going to get. Yeah, for sure. You can hear them all day long. Uh, And the other thing is, I think for a lot of people, it's evolved to be less of a derogative term and more of a a happily nostalgic term for a lot of people. Now, certainly not all, you know, particularly hardcore fans like myself and the bands. Uh, You know, if you were to say hair metal to Sebastian Bach or Nikki Six or even Joe Elliott, uh, you know, they're going to rip your stomach out through your throat if they can. And I don't blame them. Uh, but Hey, you know, we wanted to be clear about the title. Right. So I hate it, but I accept it, you know, and I'm, I'm going to use it to convey the message, but trust me, I'll get behind anybody any day of the week who says the word should never be uttered by anyone. Yeah. (laughs) I don't, I don't mind it personally, but, uh, so your book here. So originally, again, I, I, like I said, I, when I got in the mail, I was like, Oh my God, this thing's over 400 pages, but the original text was over 800 pages. You have over a thousand hair metal CDs and a thousand more on your hard drive. And you wake up every day and you check the uh, eight or nine different hair metal websites. I mean, you are, are you the yeah, most hard, with me, right? <laughs> what? you are the most hardcore fan. I mean, even harder than me. I think most people think I'm a really big hardcore hair metal fan, but I mean, how did you become such a loyal fan over the, because like we said in the nineties, a lot of people kind of, even myself, I think there was times where I kind of just lost touch with some of the scene because there just wasn't music being pumped out. Well, I think, you know, some of it is the music and the genre itself. Um, you know, all music has its dedicated fans, uh, yeah. but some genres have fans that are more fickle than others, perhaps. Right. Uh, you know, hair metal or 80s based hard rock has some really, really passionate, devoted fans. And, you know, the people that dropped off in the 90s, you know, these are they're casual fans. You know, the people who were fans because it's what they saw on MTV or it's what was being pushed on radio or it was the in thing at the time. At least it was for a few years there at the end. Uh, but a lot of people, you know, have never let go of the genre and have held on to it much more, I think, than people hold on to other genres. Probably, you know, I would say more so than things like grunge, you know, uh, you know, country fans tend to be pretty passionate as well. But the average hair metal fan, you know, you're not it's hard to be half a hair metal fan. Yeah, you, know, you either don't dig it or you're super, super passionate about it. And that's what's great about you know reading and writing about the genre and speaking with other people about it. Uh, it it's just a lot of passion for this music. And, you know, people grow up and they do different things and maybe they don't focus on music as much as they could, but they never lose that spark for it for the most part, at least not the hardcore fans. Right. There's plenty of us out there, you know, 30 million people bought Hysteria. So, you know, maybe there's still not 30 million people that are hardcore fans, but even a very small percentage of 30 million is a lot of people, right? Right. No, that's true. So in the beginning, my girlfriend asked me this the other day, she goes, so who's the first hair metal band? I'm like... Well, I don't know. So in your book, you kind of talk about Van Halen. As, is, is that maybe the first hair band? I mean, would you call them a hair band? Well, there's no definitive answers to, to these questions, which makes them so much fun. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it's, it's a two-pronged thing. I mean, hair metal's origins, right? They trace all the way back to the 70s. When you think about hair metal, and again, everyone forgive me for using the term, but when you think about you know what it stood for or what it encompassed, and you think about the theatrics of it and uh, you know the aggressiveness of the music and the styling and the highly, uh, you know, party based nature. 
but from an aesthetic standpoint, you think of David Bowie, you think of Kiss, Alice Cooper, Aerosmith, the New York Dolls, Noi Rocks, Cheap Trick, uh, all of these bands presented something that would eventually influence the hair metal template as we came into the 80s, even Led Zeppelin to an extent, right? When you mm-hmm. think about the heavy riffs with still the melodic type of music. And they had the hair, they had the long hair. And they had, right, you check the box there. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, Van Halen, you know, I mean, I personally don't, I, I don't think of bands as hair metal, right? Because I hate the term. <laughs> I employ it in the book. Uh, but if you group them all under that generalized genre, uh, and, and I don't think of Van Halen as a hair metal band, although they're a big part of the book because in the average person's view, you know, they're going to fit in that that stereotype. Uh, but they did have a lot of the blueprints for what it would become, right? They had, when you think about David Lee Roth and you think about hair metal, you think of this flamboyant, charismatic frontman. Right. This showman, the the ringleader. I mean, there's no better epitome than that than David Lee Roth. You think about all the guitar virtuosos and the focus on the guitar solo and the shredding and the riffs. And uh, is there any better example than Eddie Van Halen for? I mean, you can't pick out a guitarist in a hair metal band who didn't have Eddie Van Halen as as a primary influence. I mean, you probably just couldn't. Right. Uh, And it had this thundering bass and rhythm section. And, And most of all, it took the elements of heavy metal, right, which was loud, aggressive music and combined it with these pop sensibilities. That was really what hair metal evolved to, especially as you got to the mid eighties and albums like Slippery When Wet really broke through. You had things that pop could embrace, the top 40 could embrace these melodic pop-based songs combined with heavy guitar riffs and this loud, aggressive nature of the music. And that's what it really came about. And Van Halen had a lot of that from the start. They had melody to the music and it was a party band, right? It wasn't a heavy metal band in terms of, you know, a bang your head, it was a party band. But as you came into the early 80s, you know, everyone's aware of what, I mean, Motley Crue got their teeth cut in the early 80s. Uh, Choir Riot really had the biggest commercial breakthrough and really right. knocked down the door for all the other bands to have success and get record labels uh, with Metal Health and, and Come On, Feel the Noise. And Metal Health, you know, we know is the first number one heavy metal album and knocking the police's synchronicity off the charts at the time. Uh, and then, of course, you had uh, uh, Def Leppard coming over from, the other side of the ocean, rats round around, you know, rat was everything hair metal was along with Motley Crue and Wasp and Dokken in, in 1982 and 1983. Trista's sister had, had this, yeah. they had been toiling around since the seventies as well. Uh, and they had these two huge videos and suddenly MTV came about and, and put faces to names and, all of a sudden, Twisted Sister was in the average homeowner's living room. Yeah. <laughs> We're not going to take it. Do you think uh, those first two Motley Crue albums, so the first one's Too Fast for Love, and the second one, Shout at the Devil, both two very different sounding albums. They definitely have that kind of like hair metal look in a way, the, the hair, the kind of makeup and the leather. But the first album sounds punk to me. And then the second album sounds almost just like classic heavy metal. It really wasn't until Theater of Pain that they kind of had the more hair metal sound. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. I mean, their first album, now again, this was a very raw recording. You know, we know they did it independently before Electra took it and remastered it, remixed it. Uh, but there's a lot of elements on that first album, right? There's, to your point, there's punk. When you think about songs like uh, Too Fast for Love, there's even pop elements. Uh, you know, think about a, a very melodic song like Starry Eyes. There's the, the heavy metal, aggressive nature of a song like Livewire. But there's a lot of things on that album for sure. And I think they really did, to your point, refine their sound and, and hit their exact groove for what was going on at the Sunset Strip at the time with Shout at the Devil. I mean, this was just probably leaps and bounds beyond what their peers were doing. Uh, you know, they took the opportunity to record a proper record with a proper budget with Electra, And, you know, to their credit, they took advantage of it. It was it was bigger in every way. It, it was glossier in every way. It was still raw. Uh, but like I said, with 
a band like Molly Crew in 83 and Shout Out the Devil at the same time with what Rat and Wasp and Dokken were doing, along with Twisted Sister and Quiet Riot, that was everything at the beginning. That laid all the blueprint. And you're right. I mean, Theater of Pain was more of a, uh, you know, certainly from an image standpoint, Molly Crew did the crazy thing that no other band would be crazy enough to do of changing their their image and to somewhat their sound and even their logos with every single record as they went through the 80s. Uh, but, you know, they adopted a, a bluesier, uh, certainly a lot more glam look as they came in the theater of pain. Shout at the devil was like the, the war paint costumes. Right. And right. Then, and then like we got Road Warrior. The theater of pain. Yes. And, and you had these, uh, you know, fishnet pink outfits and, and spandex. Uh, a lot of Motley Crue fans were turned off by that at the time. Yeah. And then you said that in the book, uh, the home sweet home, which is obviously one of their biggest hits, biggest songs you know, still popular years later that you hear it on uh, commercials or it was in hot tub time machine and stuff, movies. Um, <laughs> but when they sent that uh, record to the record company, the record company thought they were joking when they put that song on the record. They're like, Oh, you that's funny. You're not going to put that. And they're like, no, we like the song and we want to release it. And it ended up being so popular on dial MTV that they had, they made a rule to retire the so- videos after 30 days because it just kept getting They're like, okay, we need to play a different song or we're going to be like a pretty boring show. That's, I thought that stuff was really interesting. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people say that, you know, home sweet home was the first power ballad and I don't exactly subscribe to that. Uh, you know, when you think about songs like, and it depends how you define power ballad, but as you think of the eighties stereotypical power ballad and the roots were, were sewn long before that Aerosmith's dream on even kisses Beth, uh, Dawkins alone again, the Scorpions still loving you twisted sisters, the price. Uh, even Stairway to Heaven, right? These all had the roots of what would become the Pallor Ballad. But there is no doubt that what Motley Crue did with Home Sweet Home definitely cemented that particular version of what would become literally thousands and thousands of, you hate to use the word copycat, but that sent the template yeah. for what people think of as the 80s power metal ballad. And you're right. I mean, they took it to their record company. And I mean, one thing was clear at the time, if you can transport yourself back to that day and age. Uh, heavy metal bands didn't play ballads in the record company's view. Huh. And they thought it was a legitimate joke, legitimate joke. And, you know, to the band's credit, uh, they fought for it to be on there. They even financed the video themselves. And then after that, I mean, of course, you couldn't put out an 80s hard rock album without having at least one ballad. Right. You didn't do it. Yeah. So another song. Yeah. Another song that was kind of, a, I don't know if it was necessarily a joke, but the song Jump by Van Halen. Um, I didn't know this, that, uh, Actually, Eddie Van Halen had written that song years before, but David Lee Roth kept rejecting it. So how did he finally get him to to agree to play it? Well, from what I've read about that, uh, of course, I wasn't there. Uh, But yeah, David Lee Roth uh, rejected that many times because he didn't believe in the movement from the guitar-based rock to the synthesizers and the keyboards. Now, of course, this was just blossoming in the early 80s with New Wave and that was really what a lot of the bands on the Sunset Strip were up against at the time is new wave pop and Duran Duran and bands like that. And so David Lee Roth was very much against this introduction of keyboards. And as a musician, Eddie Van Halen really wanted to expand what he was doing. He was fascinated with keyboards and synthesizers. And you could see throughout Van Halen's career as we go, went later into the 80s is something he became much more embraceable. Uh, but finally, you know, I'm not sure what it was that made David Lee Roth really uh, relent on the topic. I think I read once it was record label pressure, which doesn't surprise anybody. Okay. Uh, at the end of the day, you know, he said, Hey, I was wrong. You know, it, it's a huge hit. Yeah. You know, and later on he would even build his own uh, version of that sentiment. When we think about songs like just like paradise. Yeah. You know, Steve Vai hated that song because he thought it was commercial pop dribble. And yeah. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, but it yeah. was still a huge hit. Right. right. So there was something to be said for the introduction of these 
keyboards and synthesizers as it related to top 40 radio and commercial success. Absolutely. So another uh, piggybacking on the David Lee Roth. So this was interesting too, that he, he did a solo record, uh, crazy from the heat and they were going to make a movie and it was $20 million and it, and the, the movie was 80% finished and then they scrapped it. So yeah, what happened to that? Can we find like the 80% done copy? Cause I'm really curious what this movie was about or what I, it's really interesting. Actually, you can, believe it or not. Oh. Um, it was CBS Studios, and they, you're right, they had gridded, greenlit it for some exorbitant amount of money, right? And David Lee Roth and everyone who was working on the project put, uh, you know, a solid 13 months in this thing. And it was 80% down the road. At the end of the day, there was some restructuring in CBS Studios, and, and it decided to get scrapped at the 11th hour. Now, of course, they, they took a lot of the songs that were to be the soundtrack for that, and they became Eat em and Smile. And almost all of the props and the costumes and the set pieces went into all the videos. Hmm. Uh, so it wasn't, com- but if you Google it, I think it was, it wasn't so long ago. It was less than 24 months ago. Uh, at least I think it was 50 some pages of the script. Okay. Were published on the internet for the first time. Huh. Of course I read them because, you know, God knows what's wrong with me. Uh, <laughs> but of course, you know, it was exactly what it was explained to be. You know, it was a movie about David Lee Roth as an entertainer. He was going to star and it was Island life and it had all these crazy circus like characters and it was a, a musical and so, you know, what we wouldn't give to, to have seen that come to fruition. Uh, but yeah, you know, and that's interesting. Fruition. At the time, you didn't know because this is a non-internet age. You right. You only know this in retrospect. And, and that's one of the reasons I thought the book could be so enjoyable for people because, you know, today, you know, everything about bands, you know, everything about the music and everything's on the internet. But at the time, you only knew what you could read to your earlier comment in Hit Parader right. or Metal Edge or, you know, the, the very rare interview that might make a, a more commercial publication or you didn't even see these bands outside of MTV or the once a year they came to your town. So there's a lot of great stories out there. Oh, yeah. Well, this uh, is a great. Yeah, this is a great story, too. Bon Jovi, Slippery When Wet, 1986, one of the biggest, quote unquote, hair metal albums of all time and Living on a Prayer, one of the biggest songs of all time, but this actually almost didn't make the cut because uh, John Bon Jovi didn't think it was strong enough. Yeah, I mean, according That's to crazy. Him, if I remember, if I quote him right, uh, you know, he said he, he just knew it as a song that was kind of average, and he remembered all the only thing he remembered about it is it got really high at the end and was difficult to sing. <laughs> so he, he didn't think this would this was good enough, and luckily uh, Richie Sambora said, "Hey, listen, you got a huge hit here; it has to make the record." Uh, one of the other interesting things about that record, and as we're speaking about songs that made it or didn't make it. Edge um, of a Broken Heart? Edge of a Broken Heart. I was going right? to ask you that. Yeah, that's such a great song, too. But it, and that actually didn't make it. But wasn't it on like a soundtrack to the movie yeah. Orderlies or something? Yeah. Yes, it was yeah. on this Orderly soundtrack. Uh, it eventually wound up on the box set. Uh, okay. I mean, every fans can't be wrong. Uh, but yeah, I mean... In my opinion, when you look at what they did in the 80s and that style of music, I mean, that's one of the best songs. That's one of the top five songs they had, I think. In that yeah. time period. And again, it was something they didn't feel was strong enough to make the record. Now, since then, you know, John Bon Jovi has admitted he might not be the best judge of what goes on records and has apologized for <laughs> Edge of a Broken Heart not making it. Uh, of course, you're aware when they did New Jersey, they and they did some of this on Slipping and Wet, but they used the full focus group. Right. They got oh. fans in a room and again, this is pre-internet and they bring 30 fans in and it was supposed to be a double record. Uh, it, was, it was titled Sons of Beaches at the time. Huh. And of course, the record company said, heck no, you know, we're not doing, you're not doing a double album. Every okay. band always wants to do a double album. It's always commercial suicide for the most part. And so they brought in focus groups to come in and say, Hey, rank the songs, listen to the songs. And I thought that was really interesting. Of course, Bon Jovi was a huge commercial machine at that time. Yeah. So do something like that. And the biggest ranking songs coming out of those uh, sessions by the fans, uh, 
Bad Medicine, no, excuse me, Born to Be Your Baby, which we know. Uh, but the other ones were Wild in the Wind. And I think it was Stick to Your Guns, which is surprising hmm. because those two songs never even got released as singles. But no. those were the three that ranked highest in the focus groups. Okay. Uh, that's how they chose the song selection for New Jersey. Yeah. So Poison, this is the same, 86, the same time. Uh, look what the cat dragged in. That's like, I mean, that is the stereotypical hair metal. But this is something that was interesting. I don't know if I knew this and I forgot it, uh, but it was in the book that you talk about how Slash from Guns N' Roses actually auditioned for Poison, which is kind of a weird thing if you think about it. But it kind of makes you wonder what if he had joined that band? I mean, I don't know. It'd be interesting. Well, the, the, the thing people don't realize is on the Sunset Strip at that time, particularly 1981 up through 1986, really, all of the bands, you know, were rotating members amongst themselves. All right. You had literally thousands of bands and a lot of them from this genre were on the strip. Uh, the most common thing people are aware of is when they think about L.A. Guns and Guns N' Roses. I mean, Tracy Guns played in the band with Axl Rose, who played in a band with right. Stradlin, and they went back and forth. And people were coming in and out of these bands literally three, four or five different times. But yeah, when Poison lost their guitarist, uh, Matt Smith, is, if I recall correctly, uh, I think his wife got pregnant and he wanted to go home to Pennsylvania, just wasn't sure they would make it. They were uh, living in the back of the laundromat at the time and they were auditioning new guitarists. Uh, they auditioned quite a few. And uh, from what I read, it came down to, to Slash and of course, CeCe DeVille. And, uh, you know, they said, hey, Slash killed his guitar part, as you would expect he would. Um, but Poison had a very specific look at the time. He, he wasn't pretty Slash. enough. <laughs> It wasn't really enough, perhaps. Right? He certainly didn't dress the part. You know, he came in, as the story goes, with uh, some moccasins on. And Brett Michael says, those aren't the shoes you're going to wear on stage, are they? <laughs> and, uh, huh. you know, they had this this really kitschy thing where they would interrupt their set at the time and, you know, introduce themselves. And, you know, they would say, hey, I'm Bobby or hey, I'm Brett. And Slash was like, I am not saying, you know, hi, I'm Slash. <laughs> <laughs> I'm yeah. Doing this. No. And, so, uh, so he joins Guns N' Roses and the rest, you know, they put out Appetite for Destruction. I don't think a lot of people know that that took a while to take off. And I didn't, I don't know if I even knew this part that it's so easy was actually the first single from that record. I don't know if I knew that. And then the video yeah, well, was banned on MTV. <laughs> What's that? Not a lot of people heard it. Well, I love that song. It's interesting because that is like, I remember when I first got the album, I mean, obviously I'd heard the pop songs on the radio, but when I bought the full album, I think that was one of the first songs that jumped out like, whoa, this song is so crazy. And it's, you know, Axel's doing like the D it almost doesn't even sound like Axel Rose, which is so crazy, but it's almost more of like a punk song as well. Yeah. That was the thing that made it such a bizarre choice for the first single is that, uh, first of all, you know, it's laced with profanity right so uh yeah so was it an crazy. edited version that they put out or not that i've ever i don't know how you could that really. <laughs> you'd have to take out a third of the song uh so radio wouldn't touch it and of course they shot a super expensive video for it that was filled with you know extremely violent images that of course mtv said they're not going to touch mm. and then also you talk about axel rose's vocal stylings i mean he sings the the verses of that song in his very very lowest register uh it, it just had very little to do with what most of the album was about. So it was a bizarre choice for lead single. But yeah, people don't realize, I mean, all you do is you think backwards and you think, oh, Appetite for Destruction. It's a huge album, right? It must have been a hit as soon as it came out. I mean, that was almost a full year before that thing broke. And, you know, you can read the story in the book to your point. Uh, but, you know, they were about to give up on it. The record labels and said, go in and do your second album. Uh, you know, and we're not getting any more 
uh, you know, can't squeeze any more juice out of this thing. And finally, you know, a last ditch effort, you know, one of the label execs called on a favorite MTV and said, could you please play the video for Welcome to the Jungle? And they reluctantly agreed. They said, fine, we'll play it. I think it aired at, you know, 2 a.m. or 4 a.m. 4 a.m., yeah. Uh, and and you said this, the switchboard lit up. Yeah, that's great. No, I remember I had Brian Forsyth from Kicks on my show. And he was saying they were friends, you know, with Guns N' Roses and stuff. And uh, Slash was saying, wow, your album's doing so good. And uh, I think I think it was Brian Forsyth. It was one of the somebody I, th- I feel like it was him or somebody that I had. And he was trying to console Slash and go, oh, no, don't worry. Like, your album will do OK. And then, you know, of course, it blew up or whatever. But um, that same year, 87, uh, you know, so many good albums, Def Leppard, uh, you know, White Snake, But uh, Crew, again, one of my favorites. You know what's kind of interesting? I just I was when I was reading this, I was kind of thinking about this album, Girls, Girls, Girls. Now this is when Nikki Six is doing all the heroin. So you would think the music would have had like a darker kind of Alice in Chains dirt kind of thing, but it wasn't at all. It was very like, hey, girls, 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 and you know all this like fun. Like how did he write that stuff in being in such a dark place? Yeah, that was definitely the height of his heroin addiction. Uh, you know, he's, he started on the Theater of Pain album uh, and really hit its peak then. And, uh, you know, I think Girls, 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 uh, I mean, I love the album, sure. But, you know, I don't rank it very high amongst Molly's entire catalog because I think it did suffer from some of that, uh, for mm. sure. I, I think it, you know, like a lot of Motley's albums, you know, they kind of saved their career with just a couple of songs. Uh, you know, on Theater of Pain, it was uh, the pop cover of the Brownsville Station song, Smoking the Boys Room and Home Sweet Home. Uh, on Girls, 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 I mean, Wild Side and the title track were undeniably, you know, inspired moments and they belong on any Motley Crue best of. But after that, you know, the album kind of falls off a cliff a little bit. I mean, there's some other good songs in there. I think Dancing on Glass. I like that song. Uh, Five Years Dead. I like that one. Yeah. And there was some darker elements. I mean, Dancing on Glass itself is is a story about heroin. Uh, Five Years Dead a little bit. But, you know, songs like Bad Boy Boogie, uh, you know, some of the average crew fan probably sees that as a little bit of filler. It only really had eight tracks to offer in total anyway, because yeah. 96 was not at the peak of his songwriting prowess of uh, being hooked on heroin. If what's the jailhouse rockers only eight songs on that album. You know, what's, you know, what's funny is when they re-released it and it had, I think I want to say is the song rodeo. rodeo was, yeah. I love that song. I was like, dude, this song is great. Why didn't you put this on the original? Yeah, I would have actually preferred that as a ballad yeah. to You're All I Need. I didn't really care much for You're All I Need. Of course, yeah. neither did MTV because they had that crazy violent video, which seemed to be a pattern of the crew sabotaging themselves at the time. Right. Uh, and, you know, Vince Neil was in his absolutely highest vocal range on that song. But I love the song radio. If there's a crew fan out there who hasn't heard it, uh, it's a great song. They should, yeah. they should definitely track it down. Is um in that same year, Aerosmith, I mean, you kind of they're kind of on the kind of they kind of went through i would say that they're not a hair metal band but they went through a hair metal phase and uh you know they released that album it was so great uh you know it's got dude looks like a lady ragdoll angel but the song dude looks like a lady is that i feel like i've heard this debate is it about brett michaels or vince neal or both the story goes it's about vince neal okay i thought it was about yeah because i thought i heard other people say it was about brett michaels so it's actually 100 percent vince neal then that is what i understand and you're right i think you know, Aerosmith, when people talk about which bands were and weren't hair metal, and it's a fantastic discussion, by the way, mm-hmm. uh, we should get into it. But, you know, <laughs> the, the first bands to get thrown out uh, are Van Halen and Aerosmith. And there's a reason for that. You know, for, there's a lot of reasons for that. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, Aerosmith went through what you might call a hair metal phase. Again, when we talk about taking these aggressive, groovy guitar riffs and combining them with really pop melodic songs. And, you know, they had their comeback album before that. It didn't really work out for them. But hey, on permanent vacation, here come the outside writers, right? The people that can write mm-hmm. hit songs. 
songs like Ragdoll and Dude Looks Like a Lady. And suddenly, yeah, they're on radio. And this time in the round, in their pocket, they have MTV, mm. right, which was really the primary vehicle for any band to succeed. Right. And I think influenced a lot of the genre in the extent that people talk about glam and fashion. And hey, let's face it, in a non-internet age, the only vehicle you had for exposure was MTV at the time. And if you want to be on MTV, you got to look pretty. Yeah. That's just the way it was. For sure. So, so yeah, it was a hair metal type sounding album. And again, forgive me, you know, the Aerosmith purists out there are going to take great offense to this. And I hear them. I hear them loud and clear. Uh, but it shared a lot of similarities with the way that music was constructed at the time. I, I thought it was interesting, too. I don't know. You don't really go over this too much in your book. But um, you do talk about how Aerosmith was recording the, the uh, next album, Pump next to uh, Motley Crue during their Dr. Feelgood. And they kind of reminisce or uh, they, or they uh, talk about being sober. But I, when I had Karabi on here, he was saying that I was like, yeah, so they were sober when they recorded the Motley Crue. And he goes, yeah, sorta <laughs> like he was saying they'd, they'd start out with the fridge was full of like, you know, water and diet Coke. And then he's like, slowly it would go and fill up with a start filling up with beer and stuff. And I was like, Oh, cause like, if you read the dirt, they talk about falling off the wagon, like, there's at least two instances they talk about in the book, but according to Karabi, there was a lot more that maybe didn't make the book. There was a lot of like, you know, they, he said they were trying and he didn't want to like, you know, badmouth anybody's sobriety, but it sounds like that it was a process at that point. I, I think yeah, that I mean, stuff's kind of interesting. There's certainly a lot of truth. That. I mean, the, the narrative goes that they were sober. Right. And certainly, you know, they did all go to rehab after, you know, the Girls 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 tour, which, you know, by some miracle didn't end in their death. I mean, technically it ended in Nikki Sikki's Nikki Sikki's death. Right. Uh, but yeah, I mean, they all went to rehab. And, and I think, you know, their management said, listen, you guys, you have to get sober. You have to do something different or it's going to end. And I think they made, you know, whatever attempt Motley Crue could make. Now, how sober is sober? I think, you know, only those that were there are going to know. But to your point, I don't think it was 100 percent pure. You know, mm -hmm. were they more sober than in the past? Quite likely. And there were times yeah. did they fall off the wagon? Sure. But I mean, when you think about what they did on that album, you know, Bob Rock took them up to Vancouver. I mean, he put them through the paces like they'd never been put through before in terms of a real focus on the absolute best they could do musically and songwriting and production. Uh, you know, that was their chance to really emerge from this thing and either make it to the top of the hard rock heap or, or don't or flame mm -hmm. out. And to their credit, they did. And for most of that tour, you know, we can call them mostly sober, but Molly Crew was a machine mm -hmm. on that Dr. Feelgood tour, yeah. right? They were tight. They were on top of their game. Uh, you know, they were lean and fit and, and mean and nasty. You know, Vince Neil was at probably the height of his vocal ability. Uh, you know, that was quite the tour to see. I remember that one vividly. Oh, that would have been cool. Yeah. So there were some, there's some really interesting facts that I, again, I think, I don't know if I knew these or, and forgot or just didn't know it, but as I'm reading, you're talking about warrant, uh, the song heaven was actually had to be re-recorded. And uh, another fact that was interesting, Mr. Big, the singer, Eric Martin, I did not know he auditioned for Van Halen and Toto. Yeah. That's news to me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, these, and that's the beauty of, you know, being able to read things like this, like today you would know that. Uh, but you know, at the time, unless it made metal edge or rip or whatever, what is you were reading? I mean, you wouldn't know as a fan, but it's super interesting. Yeah. And something fans like almost just as much as listening to this style of music, it's learning more about it and talking about it with other fans and oh, hopefully yeah. reading about it. Uh, but yeah, heaven was interesting. And I don't know that it was a full re-record. It was at least a remix. Okay. Uh, it, it did touch up some things. Uh, but you know, the record company got kind of caught with his pants down. They didn't realize the huge single that they had in their hand. Uh, mm -hmm. once it started to break, they said, wait a second, you know, let's get back in here and let's give this 
at the time they would call it a bigger, you know, louder, more powerful sound, more reminiscent of what you think is the traditional big bombastic power ballad. And let's get this thing ready, ready for radio. But that was pretty unconventional at the time, right? I mean, bands weren't called in to, to remix or, or remaster or re-record pieces of things just because they thought they had a hit in their hands. So it's kind of a unique piece of history there. Yeah. And then, I mean, the other story with Warren, I think most people know this about how, you know, it was supposed to be called the Cherry Pie album was supposed to be called Uncle Tom's Cabin. Uh, but then the record company wanted a love in the elevator kind of type of song. And so uh, Janie Lane went back in and, uh, you know, wrote this thing on the lyrics on a pizza box. And uh, by the way, do you know where that those lyrics are? Because I thought they were I heard they were in a hard rock hotel in Florida, but I cannot find that anywhere on the Internet. That's something I, that you I might know. know. No, okay. I know if somebody has that pizza box, I'd be impressed. Yeah, that, uh, I, I thought it was on a hard rock, but I, yeah. So, but this is something I didn't know. I thought I knew everything about Warren. The opening scream in Cherry Pie is D. Snyder, and it's like yeah. it's like they lifted it from another why? album. That's so bizarre. Yeah, I mean, and to this day, I don't know why Bo Hill chose to do that. Yeah, um, I'd love to know, uh, but for whatever reason, yeah, he lifted it off a, a twisted song. Off, I think it was the Love is for Suckers album, if I remember properly. And you know, the song was called fan, I Want This Night to Last Forever, according to your book. Yeah, that was it. Um, you know, if you were the average fan at the time and I was included, I mean, why wouldn't you think that was Janie Lane? Mm-hmm. Well, why would you do that? I have no idea. But yeah, that's actually decent. And he's not credited anywhere on the album liner notes. Hmm. Uh, but Sounds like a lawsuit. <laughs> well, I think things were a little looser back in the day, but who I knows? So. But yeah. yeah. Uh, that's D Snyder. Absolutely. And that, yeah. And so speaking of writing on pizza boxes and we have another one that was, uh, writ- scratched out on a napkin. So, uh, the young guns too. Emilio Estevez, they wanted, he wanted to use wanted dead or alive, the Bon Jovi song. And John Bon Jovi said, eh, I don't think that's a good fit. So he's having dinner with Emilio Estevez and Kiefer Sutherland, which God, to be a fly on the wall of those three guys, that would be fun. And he scratches out on a napkin or three napkins, the song blaze of glory. I mean, did he write the whole song or just some of the lyrics on that? Like, what's the story there? I mean, I'm not sure. I've never seen the napkins, to your point, like the pizza box. Uh, so I'm not sure he had the full score. But, yeah, I mean, supposedly he had the majority of the song there written by the end of lunch, uh, you know, handed it across <laughs> the table. And, you know, he thought One and Dead or Alive wasn't a good fit. I mean, naturally, they were attracted to it because it's got this Western theme, which fits the movie. Yeah. But he said, hey, this song's about life on the road and mm-hmm. a touring band, if you really listen to the lyrics. He said, I'll give you your song. And, you know, to his credit, you know, to the extent John's an amazing songwriter in some instances, banged it out right there. And of course, it becomes a huge number one hit. And he wound up, you know, writing the entire uh, soundtrack to the movie as his first solo album. Uh, But isn't amazing the way these things transpired at the time? Oh, yeah. No, I love it. And 1990 was just I mean, we talk about Warrant and uh, Poison as an album, Firehouse and Trickster, all these bands. I mean, this is like almost the peak. Do you remember the episode of Full House? where Danny Tanner goes to a slaughter concert. I do not. Oh, <laughs> you would think I should know that. But that's I, like, an, I, yeah, I do not know that. they don't, don't show the band or anything. Yeah. They just talk about it. I just remember that. Like as a kid going, like, I think that's how I first heard about slaughter, but, um, and then 91, I mean, I think 91 in my opinion is the best year for music, if not at least rock music and not only hair metal. Um, cause I know you're a purist, but I am a I am a rock fan, and I mean they had Nirvana's album Metallica, Metallica, uh, and you even talk about Metallica and Ozzy, and I mean if you look at all the rock albums, I mean even grunge, Pearl Jam and Nirvana, I mean there's so many great albums from that year, and and I think you put number one, which I love, Skid Row, Slave to the Grind, and that's the first album for me that made me a fan of of rock music. A girl I was into rap at the time, and a girl I was dating played that, and I was like. 
what is this? And then that's what, that's what sold me on rock music. So that's crazy. So you, it's a personal favor for both of us. Um, but you're, it's kind of interesting because like I said, you're more of a purist, so you didn't think it was too heavy. Well, I mean, so I appreciate, uh, certainly, you know, what you think of as generalized eighties hair metal, but you know, I liked a lot of the things that these bands evolved to that wasn't eighties hair metal, you know, and this is a good example. Uh, there's tons of others, uh, specifically the, the 1994 album, uh, that Motley Crue did with John Crabbe. I mean, I love yeah. that album. I had nothing to do with hair metal. Right. Uh, so I'm certainly not limited to the eighties version of what these bands did, but yeah, it's hard to classify. I mean, first of all, a lot of people would say Skid Row should never be classified as hair metal anyway, just because mm. they were, you know, not, they didn't really have that type of fashion, although I certainly had the hair. We keep coming back to that. Um, but, you know, they were a heavier band, but the self-titled debut, of course, got its commercial wings on the ballads or the pseudo ballads with I Remember You and 18 in Life, a very typical, the hair metal template at that time. But songs like Youth Gone Wild or Making a Mess, I mean, these were these were heavier than what the Poisons and the Warrants and the Bon Jovis were doing at the time by far, but they still had that melodic sensibility. But Slave to the Grind, I mean, I can't, you're not going to meet anyone that's going to say this is a hair metal album in any way, shape or form. I mean, this is just a full on brutal, vicious assault of a hard rock album. I mean, I thought it was amazing, right? I actually liked it at the time. The bands were getting harder and heavier and slightly bluesier. You know, as a fan, I was evolving too. Uh, but I liked the direction bands were taking in that that vein. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's a beast, right? I mean, by the time you get done Slave to the Grind, and it's one of those rare albums you don't have to skip a single track. I mean, you just feel like you've been run over by a truck. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sebastian Bach was absolutely at his, his peak of vocal powers at the time. He had that twin guitar attack, just crazy riffs. And you didn't have the, the super sappy 80s power ballads, but you still had three ballad type songs. But these weren't traditional ballads. I mean, these were heavy, dramatic, strong, amazing pieces. And the other songs, even though they were brutally heavy, I mean, they still had melody. And Skid Row was really good at that, at least in the yeah, first couple albums. I think uh, so, I like, too. It's always going to be in my top five, for sure. Yeah, me too. Metal. I love it. So, And then the Guns N' Roses, obviously, Appetite's a huge success, 30 million or whatever copies sold. But then the Use Your Illusions. Um, and you, you talk about some interesting things, why this was different. Obviously, it's a double album. Uh, but the band didn't write as a group as they did with appetite. Um, and they obviously they didn't have, uh, Steven Adler, the drummer, and that changed the groups. Uh, you said swing from appetite. And it is interesting. I do. I love Matt Sorum. I think he's a great drummer, but it, I, I had something about Adler's drumming on that first album. It, it sounds, uh, I don't know. It's, it's a sound like, I feel like, uh, I don't know what the technical term is, but Sorum uses a lot of like, it's kind of more like a pounding, like deep drum. Yeah, and I feel like, for sure. Okay. Yeah. I feel like Adler's a little lighter, and I don't know something about that, but um, you could be mine is the best song you said. And that was actually written during the appetite sessions. I, I fascinated why that wouldn't have made the album. Cause it's a great song. Um, and you also talk about how Axel kind of uh, overproduced some of the songs on use your illusions. Like they originally had a production similar to appetite, but um, people would leave. And then Axel would be found in the studio alone, tinkering, with the songs from 2 a.m. to 7 a.m., layering all sorts of technology and other kinds of things. That's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, I mean, Guns N' Roses is somewhat unique in the sense, I mean, it was really the, the sum of the whole, the whole was more than the sum of the parts, right? Each member of that band brought something very unique and special and integral to that music and that sound they had an appetite for destruction, right? Axel is extremely uh, distinct in terms of what he's doing as a vocalist, Slash from a, a guitar standpoint, uh, you know, he could shred, but he was much more more in the Joe Perry kind of Aerosmith, you know, let's get a riff on it. 
Uh, Duff brought the the punk sensibilities. Uh, Izzy was a tremendous songwriter, first of all, but what he was doing with rhythm guitar, you know, he had a way of perfectly complemented what Slash was doing in these unique, inventive rhythm guitar parts that didn't take over the songs, but were a perfect accompaniment to what Slash was playing. And Stephen Adler, yeah, I mean, the, the guy is not, you know, on your, your top tier of technical drummers, but he had a certain, people use the term swing about him, and he gave those songs a feel, mm-hmm. you know, for better or worse. But everything had changed, to your point, by user illusions, right? I mean, yeah. Guns N' Roses was a different entity, um, and they weren't writing songs together in a cockroach-infested apartment as teenagers anymore. They weren't writing songs in the back of a van on some tour up to Seattle. Uh, you know, they were largely separated and bringing in songs that were mostly pre-written uh, by individuals, and the rest of the group would kind of add what they could. The first songs, after After Destruction, I mean, someone would sit down with a riff and all five of them in a circle, hmm. and they're each putting their stamp on that, and everyone's bringing something to the table. It just wasn't that yeah. conjunctive effort on the album. And yeah, I mean, I mean, some people are big fans of the albums, and certainly they are, by any objective measure, a tremendous success commercially, and even for what they were. I was not a big fan just because I don't think they had much in common mm-hmm. with the Appetite for Destruction sound. Yeah, but you did, uh, um, you did make your own. I think everyone, I've done this too. You made your own Use Your Illusion one, one <laughs> album. You put all the songs, and I, I would argue we don't have to separate have a debate about this later, but. I would argue some of the songs and I don't want to give it away because I think people should check out the book and see what your list is and see how it compares to theirs. But um, here's a totally random. I mean, there's like I said, 91 was so good, um, but but I didn't know this. I, I'm, I'm a Danger Danger fan and the, the album Screw It. I believe that was 91, correct? I didn't know that was originally supposed to be called Monkey Business based yeah. with the song Monkey Business. But then they thought because Skid Row had the song Monkey Business, it was too much, too much monkey business. So they just <laughs> called it uh, Screw It. But that song Monkey Business by Danger Danger, that's a really underrated song. Why wasn't that a bigger hit? I, I thought I thought it was a great song. I mean, I'm a big Danger Danger fan, too. And I thought uh, Screw It was actually their, their better album. Most people like the debut. But, you know, it, it gets into something which I'm sure we're going to come to. And at that point, you oh, here know, we go. Yep. Right. I mean, you can't avoid this when you're talking about the genre. Uh, you know, the supply started to just outstrip the demand. Yeah. Right? And, and too many. Too, too many, too much, uh, you know, saturation, uh, nothing overly new and inventive. I love that album. But yeah, uh, when they found out Skid Row was having success with the title, you know, they became frustrated. And, you know, the record company was trying to talk them into something different. And they eventually, you know, got all upset and they just said, oh, you know, F it. And they said, OK, well, then we'll just call the album Screw It. <laughs> so that became the title. Yeah. Uh, so bizarre things that happen when right. people are coming up with these things. So the music scene is changing and, uh, you know, people talk about grunge killing hair metal. Uh, now, you say this is interesting. I'm going to kind of debate you a little bit on this one. You say that it was a simplified or low, lower level of musicianship. Um, but don't you think the songwriting was much more original and complex, especially the lyrics for some of that grunge music? I mean, it was really like Allison Chains' Dirt. I mean, especially the sound on that was so unique. I mean, I can, I can understand if you don't really like it, but you have to admit like some of the originality, was. I feel like it kind of needed to happen. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, when you talk about musicianship, I mean, first of all, let's you know, put the elephant uh, in the room on the table, right? I mean, how much uh, talent and musicianship does it take to write I want action or talk dirty to me, right? <laughs> right. Uh, you know, these are not uh, Mozart's or Beethoven's symphony. Sure. Um, I, I think the musician aspect of it stand, stood out when you think about when you were a guitar player in the mid-80s on the Sunset Strip, I mean, to compete with the Eddie Van Halens and the Warren D. Martinis and the Vito Bradas uh, of the world, I mean, you had to be 
a, a top-notch virtuoso guitars, mm-hmm. right? And it's certainly not a detriment to grunge, but they simply didn't employ that kind of music. Uh, right. You know, it was more three chord, you know, strum along. That's not to say there wasn't other things that were more complicated, but the average kid coming out of the average garage could play grunge songs. Uh, you weren't going to go out there and, and shred like Steve Vai, uh, not without a lot of dedication. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and it's all personal preference for sure. Uh, but, you know, the average person is not going to be able to sing like Axl Rose or Sebastian Bach in their prime. Now, again, these stylings aren't for everybody, uh, but the average person could get closer, you know, to singing like Kurt Cobain. And not that, you know, he wasn't extremely talented because I think he was extremely talented for sure. Uh, But yeah, there's this popular sentiment out there that, you know, grunge killed hair metal or more specifically, people will tell you Nirvana killed hair metal. And, you you know, you read the book. Uh, I don't exactly subscribe to this. I think there's a lot of truth to that for sure. But it was much more than that. I think think they killed themselves. I think it was just oversaturation. But this is interesting. Tell me this story. So Warrant actually cut a demo song during the grunge era and they had their manager strategically present it to the record label without the artist's name on it to avoid any negative stigma. And the label executive was reportedly thrilled to hear this amazing new song and insisted the band be presented immediately to be signed to a record deal and, uh, you know, fortune and fame. And then they told him it was Warrant. And then the record label said, we don't want anything to do with that. What song was that? I'm fascinated by it. I've never heard the story. I have never heard the song title, uh, believe it or not. Okay. Uh, and you know, that's, not a, that's not a unique story. Uh, Tom Kiefer and Cinderella actually went through something very similar not oh. so long ago. But yeah, I mean, anything that was even tangentially, peripherally, remotely related to hair metal, you know, I mean, they wouldn't touch it. And, and you're right. I think there were other things that killed hair metal. Uh, you know, the bands themselves, you know, we talked about, I mean, the industry, certainly MTV, if the bands didn't do it themselves, but yeah, there was a lot of market saturation. There was some copycatting. I mean, I'm huge fans of these bands, but when you think about bands like Firehouse or Trickster, Nelson, Steelheart, Roxy Blue, Tor Tor, Kick Tracy, Sweet FA, you can name them all day long. I mean, pretty they, good weren't exactly, they weren't exactly reinventing the wheel, yeah. right? nothing against them, but there was only so much demand against this infinitely growing amount of supply. And the bands were already changing their, their sound and style. We've talked about it some, you know, Guns N' Roses, even when they did Appetite for Destruction, that largely ushered out the overly glam fashion. Right. Mm-hmm. A lot of that changed right then. And that was 1987. Uh, but even the sound of bands changed long before 1991. Uh, Cinderella did Heartbreak Station, which was much more organic. You know, all the reverb was taken away. It was even more so uh, people would call it a country type album. Uh, you know, Cherry Pie aside, the song, to your point, the record label made him right. Uh, you know, he was trying for some different things. When you think about songs like Song and Dance Man or mm-hmm. Mr. Rainmaker or even Uncle Tom's Cabin, wasn't all partying and girls and sex and drugs and rock and roll again. Uh, even Flesh and Blood by Poison, this is probably a stretch. You know, they were trying to do things other than open up and say, ah, and look what the cat dragged in. Uh, songs like Life Loves a Tragedy or Something to Believe in. Skid Row went in a different direction. Mm-hmm. Even the Usual Illusion albums had nothing to do with hair metal. Uh, you mentioned Blaze of Glory. Right. The Blaze of Glory soundtrack did not sound like the huge, bombastic pop metal, hair metal, quote unquote, of New Jersey or Slippery West. So the bands were already changing. But grunge was really just the tipping point. Yeah. So it's kind of. Yeah. I was just going to say. Sorry. Go on. Finish. I think you have to think about it, not just the music. Right. I mean, you think about what was going on. Uh, culturally even, uh, you know, grunge was more connected, I think, to a generation that was experiencing a distinctly different political and socioeconomic climate than what was present during hair metal's birth in the mid-80s. I mean, the 80s, for those of us that were there, I mean, it was all about 
big, bigger, bigger, excess, more, 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 more partying, more drugs, louder, faster. You know, it literally was nothing but a good time. Mm. But, you know, as the shifted into the 90s, right, I mean, the bubble had to burst. You know, the 80s came to a close. The economy wasn't doing so well. The, the shift was more grim and somber. And grunge felt, I think, more real to the new generation. It was the perfect medium if you were angry, sad, confused, depressed, and you want to embrace those feelings. I mean, hair metal offered you nothing for that. The average kid that couldn't relate to just having nothing but a good time anymore was able to connect. Uh, you know, personally, I was seeking the exact opposite. Mm-hmm. And then it was also the accessibility that we talked about. You know, the average, I think kids in the 90s, you might be able to appreciate what Motley Crue was doing on stage with this huge spectacle. But when you went to a, a Nirvana concert, you know, here were guys that they looked like you. Uh, they could play guitar like maybe you could and you could relate and you could say, hmm. hey, this uh, this I know about. And rock music really rock music, rock and roll throughout the history of music has always been about rebel- rebellion. Right. And that's why I sit so well with younger folks. But there's no rebellion in liking something as a kid that's already commercially king, right? which hair metal was at the time. You know, there was nothing yeah. to rally against. Gotcha. Uh, yeah. So but I mean, in 92, I feel like, you know, there were still a little bit of life with hair metal, right? I mean, Bon Jovi cut their hair. That was kind of weird. And then, uh, you know, Warrant, they kind of went with like a biker, like black leather kind of look. And uh, you are not a fan of Dog Eat Dog as much. I really like that record. Um, I also like the Slaughter record, Wildlife. I thought that song, Wildlife, was so good. And you're not a fan of the Firehouse Hold Your Fire. You thought it was a little bland and generic. And you said that helped hair metal dig its own grave. So that's why you say it's not all grunge. It was some of these albums. Some of these things get a little bit stale, right? Yeah. And trust me, I appreciate the Doggy Dog album for what it is. And honestly, you know, candidly, somewhat more objectively, it's probably their best album in terms of songwriting and musical performances. For me at the time, you know, I was part of the problem. I just wanted to hear the down boys again. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't want to hear Andy Warhol was right. Uh, now, certainly, you know, Machine Gun, I could groove to all day. Uh, but, you know, I didn't necessarily wanted to evolve with the bands uh, at the time. So did um, you like the Vince Neil Exposed record that you said? I that's a great album. The Vince Neil that's the, your that's number one album of 1993. <laughs> because, you know, what Vince Neil did at the time was, you know, tried to root himself purely in that late 80s sound. Right? I mean, yeah. that record is basically a slightly more poppy Dr. Feelgood. Right. So he definitely carried the torch. But I think it was really it was MTV in the industry that shut it down. Yeah. Right? I mean. At the time, you know, people like to think it happened overnight, but you, if you were there, it wasn't exactly overnight. I mean, it was sudden and it was abrupt and I've never seen anything like it in terms of an industry and a musical style that just years earlier had been selling millions and millions of records. All of a sudden, nope, you're all dropped from your record. Deal. I mean, maybe disco was dropped just as quickly, but, you know, MTV said, listen, there's only going to be one thing here and you have to choose. You know, in 1991, I saw Alice in Chains open for Van Halen. And it was all rock and roll. You know, mm-hmm. we didn't want to choose as fans. I liked uh, the Facelift album, and I had the, ne- the Nevermind album. I thought, this is a cool sound. But I didn't know I was going to have to choose. I didn't know MTV and the radio was going to say, it's one or the other. And that's pretty much what happened. Right. And then it did become almost this amazingly overnight phenomena where, again, you were just an absolute laughingstock if you had anything to do with 80s hard rock as we approach 1993, 1994. Well, and especially, um, so that same year in 93, uh, the winger pull album, which, you know, a lot of people say it's their best album. I remember 
um, you know, when I became friends with this guy and he was really into music and I, and I loaned him a bunch of my CDs and I think, uh, I don't know why I think I said, just check this out. There's a song that was on the rock charts. You might like it. And he was like blown away at that song down incognito. He's like, this song is so great. I'm like, yeah, I know. It's like, but it's one of those things where the stigma of that hair metal just hurt those guys so much. And, and that continues in the 94. There's still some great records. And again, you you mentioned this earlier with the Motley Crue self-titled. Now, like I said, I think you're kind of definitely more of a purist than me, but you really like this album. Explain how you like this album. Cause I'm just, it shocks me. There's so much more where you go, ah, oh, this sounded too heavy. And, and um, I mean this, cause this album is really nothing to do with hair metal other than the name. No, and honestly, I mean, I probably give off the wrong impression. I like a lot of the stuff that wasn't, you know, purist, right? Uh, not only this album, but, you know, L.A. Guns put out Vicious Circle at the time. Uh, bon Jovi did These Days, which, you know, of course, I wasn't a huge fan of at the time. But in retrospect, you can appreciate it for what it was. I mean, Paul, yeah. I think, is absolutely Winger's best album. Uh, I even liked Def Leppard's Slang. I thought it was great. Most people hated it. Mm -hmm. uh, but, yeah, I loved Motley Crue 1994 because I just thought it was – you know, absolute heavy as hell, right? I mean, this was a super heavy, amazingly brutal album, a lot like how we described uh, Slave to the Grind. But, you know, Karabi was a huge vocalist, right? Just extreme power. And the group was tight and it had this now this dual guitar attack and these amazingly crunchy, uh, hard hitting, groovy songs. I loved it, uh, you know, and I was plenty happy because even though my heroes, Motley Crue, weren't together again, and we had Vince Neil doing his thing and, and he still had the Motley Crue sound. Uh, so, you know, I embraced it wholeheartedly. I would have loved to see them do another album with Karabi in that style. Uh, now, of course, you know, I, I wasn't a fan of Generation Swine at all. Yeah, yeah. But there was a lot of great albums in the 90s uh, that didn't necessarily have that sound. I mean, Great White had that very laid back, almost acoustic type album, uh, Sail Away. Even the L.A. Guns album, American Hardcore. I mean, almost everybody would say this is a piece of garbage album. Uh, but, you know, is very Steve Riley and Tracy Guns were very much into Pantera at this time. And they said, we want to make an album that sounds like Pantera. And they did. And I still have some songs in that album on my gym playlist, right? Yeah. What about, that. um, in going back to 94, uh, dangerous toys put out an album called pissed and Gilby Clark pawn shop guitars. I think those are two great albums you don't put those in your best of, uh, 1994. Yeah, I really like what that's particularly like the, the Gilby Clark album. Yeah. Uh, you know, that was really a surprise to me in terms of just terrific songwriting. And again, real rootsy, organic, uh, you know, wonderful stripped back songs. Uh, I still play that in rotation today. Uh, the interesting thing was that uh, Dangerous Toys album, the artist formerly known as Dangerous Toys. Right? I don't know if you stumbled upon yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. That one's a little that one's a, was a little too much for me. But I thought the Pissed album was great, especially that first song, Pissed. And he does that live. I got to see him do it live. I was like, oh, it sounds so great. Uh, but then 95, uh, Skid Row. Skid Row is probably my number one favorite band in high school. So I was really looking forward to this album. And I liked it. I mean, I don't think it was in hindsight, you know, in retrospect, I don't think it's as good as Slave to the Grind. But I found this interesting. I don't think I even knew this. You talk about in your book how Sebastian Bach had to kind of fight to get some of those screams on the album because Bob Rock thought he should sing more like Wyland from Stone Temple Pilots. That's a weird mix. Such a thing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the band was in tremendous turmoil at the time, right? I yeah. Mean, you know, the, the glory days were long past. They weren't getting along even more so than they ever didn't get along. Uh, they were making the record under a different musical climate. Uh, you know, things had already started to go sour. Uh, they couldn't agree on things. And I, I do think the song had the album has some good songs on it from a songwriting standpoint. And I don't think it, it holds a candle to their prior to. But I think what really plagued that album is the production. 
uh, I almost can't listen to that album as far as the production goes. I mean, they got this this drum sound that is it's hard to describe. It's almost like a St. Anger sound, although nothing could be like that. Uh, Metallica St. Anger album. But, you know, there's this really bizarre drum sound. It's kind of thin sounding. And, you know, Bob Rock was intentionally trying to strip back anything that sounded like the, the heavy reverb and the big bombastic 80 sounding hard rock oh. album. Uh, but, you know, the production, I mean, Sebastian put in a tremendous performance, but yeah, Bob Rock was telling him, listen, you know, Scott Weiland doesn't have to, to scream like this. Why don't you sing like that? And of course, Sebastian Bach wasn't having any of it. Uh, but, you know, the album, I think it just fell short for me and, and probably the band itself. Yeah. And you don't like the Warrant Ultraphobic album. Um, but I, I do think uh, you mentioned a couple songs that you liked. Do you not like the song Crawl Space? I felt like that was one of the better songs on that. It's kind of a catchy little tune. And the other one I really like on that, which I think Janie said it was the, his favorite song he ever wrote was uh, Stronger Now. Yeah, I mean, Stronger Now is absolutely, you know, one of the most beautiful songs I've ever heard. Yeah, it's like a Beatles uh, Blackbird kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, that's just it's one of the greatest songs, you know, and Janie had a just an amazing songwriter and a huge talent for being able to write songs like that. I mean, I love that song more than I can express. And it's funny you mentioned Crawl Space. I mean, that would, if I had to pick out a song that was in Stronger Now and put it on a playlist, I would extract that one from the album. Uh, but that was the only song in the album that really had that, you know, 80s melodic pop sensibility versus the other songs that were more admittedly alternative or grungy in nature. And again, I think the album is great from a songwriting standpoint versus what he was trying to accomplish at the yeah. time. Well, and I so just, with know, that one, it, what I was looking for, I didn't want to hear family pick a pick about right. you know, spousal abuse and things like that. I just wanted, I was a stupid kid. I just wanted a party. Yeah. <laughs> so that one, it was kind of more like Janie wanted that sound, but then the Vince Neil, his second uh, solo record carved in stone. It sounds like it was more the record company was saying, you need to make it sound like this. And they were trying to kind of mold him into a different sound. And you're not happy with the results of that one either. <laughs> well, uh, you know, I, I mean, Vince Neil's never been a prolific songwriter, if a songwriter at all. Right. And that's yeah. just you know, not something he's, he's bringing to the band. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, Warner Brothers at the time, I mean, he had one of the last you know labels that actually cared what these bands were doing or at least tried to care. And they said, hey, you're going to work with the Dust Brothers. And they, of course, had done the Beastie Boys albums and a couple other albums. And, and they were known for hip hop and, and street beats. And it was the record company saying, you know, we're going to take your name and we're going to marry it with current things. And we think that will keep you relevant. Uh, and, you know, I think Vince, you know, he was going through some very, very difficult things at the time personally. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, he, he was probably up for doing something different from what I read. I don't think he thought it would turn out that different. Right. He would leave the studio, uh, come back the next day and the Dust Brothers kind of like <laughs> via Axel on Use Your Illusion Records. Uh, they, it didn't sound anything like what he thought. Uh, that record has a, a pretty different sound. Uh, there's a lot of hip hop elements to it, a lot of grungy stuff, something like Black Promises. Uh, you know, of course, and then you have the, this exception that the Skyler song, of course, uh, written for his late daughter. Uh, but, you know, again, don't get me wrong. I appreciate what all these artists did in the 90s. And there's a lot of good stuff there. You know, Poison's Native Tongue album, uh, you know, even the things that were more grungy, like Danger Danger's Dawn or, you know, the things Stephen Percy did from a, a solo standpoint. I think there's some great stuff there. And I listened to them. It just wasn't, you know, as to your point, as a purist, what I was looking for. From yeah. Japan, but I'm happy that they were evolving. Yeah, because you, you list your top albums from every year, and this is when it starts to get a little bit slimmer. There's like, you know, it goes from the top 20 to like five, and and then in 1998, you've only got two albums on your top albums of the year. So I think this is kind of where I not necessarily like stopped being a fan, but I just kind of was like, well, there's there's just no music coming out. But um, this was an interesting story you said in uh, speaking of 98. Um, you know, Motley Crue and Skid Row, they put out some greatest hits album. The Van Halen 3, of course, you know, that's a kind of a flop. 
Uh, but the Firehouse album, which I you know never really listened to that too much, the Category Five. This, explain this story. You said uh, the song "Acid Rain." You were at a show where they filmed the music <laughs> video and they played the song three times. So is this three times in a row, or did they play it like at the beginning, the middle, and the end, or how does that work? No, it, no, it's three times in a row. And believe it or not, that was not uncommon for bands at the time, right? They would shoot the videos live huh. uh, with the, the crowd experience, and you know, to get every angle or every different thing they would need, they'd play the song multiple times. Okay, uh, that just happened to be one I remembered. Yeah. Um, and that was an interesting album because a lot of these bands that, you know, lost their footing in America, certainly, uh, you know, the same thing didn't necessarily happen overseas, right? Hair metal did, didn't get completely ushered out like it did with, with MTV in America. And particularly in Asia, a lot of these bands held their audience, particularly the bands that specialized in the power ballads because the Asian audience really embraced the power ballads. So, you know, bands like Steelheart and Firehouse and Mr. Big at the time, in the mid nineties, late nineties, they could go over to Japan and, and tour like Kings of the world. Like nothing had ever happened. Like grunge had never been invented. Uh, you know, I think firehouse at that time did a, a tour of all, all of Indonesia and sold out every show, like 20,000 foot, but we come back in America. They couldn't have played my backyard. I'll bet. Um, so they wrote that album very specifically with that Asian audience in mind. Mm. And it was very much a softer, you know, more acoustic type of record. And it did well there. Uh, but they, that wasn't a commercial decision versus, you know, the more pop heavy metal they had on their debut. Yeah, no. And so then, you know, like I said, there was a few years that were pretty sparse, but then it seems like it's kind of slowly coming back, partly because of like the VH1 behind the music and like the movie Rockstar came out. So there was like a little bit of a resurgence here. Um, and then Guns N' Roses, they finally put out Chinese Democracy. What was this year? What year was this like? 2008, if I remember. 2008. Right. So, um, and you kind of say it wasn't as bad as everyone says, but Here's my thing with that well, album. That doesn't sound like me. <laughs> or, maybe, or maybe that's what I think. Uh, I just put that in my notes. But because here's my thing is like, I think it, the thing is, is it should have been an Axl Rose solo album. Don't you agree? I mean, it's not uh, Guns N' Roses. It's Axl Rose for sure. And I feel like his name is big enough that he could have called it that. I wonder what, if, why they didn't do that. If you ever thought of that. Yeah. I mean, Axl felt that, you know, he owned the name. Uh, sure. You know, and he worked hard for it and he felt that he was going to rebuild that brand in his image. Right. So he didn't want to sacrifice the brand power of, of Guns N' Roses. Uh, was he big enough to call it an Axl Rose record? Absolutely. Would it now? Of course, it, I'm not selling anyway. Uh, yeah. But, you know, from a commercial standpoint, he would have been crazy to call it anything with Guns N' Roses. Uh, certainly. Mm. But you're right. I mean, as you got to the turn of the century, there was a legitimate resurrection of sorts or rebirth now these bands weren't going to go to immediately selling millions and millions of, of albums and have platinum records of snap of a finger again and a lot of people look at the book title and they see it the rise uh the fall and the rebirth of hair metal and they say i remember the rise i remember the fall i'm not so sure about this rebirth thing but it was a legitimate thing as we got to the the end of the century you know, nostalgia started to take place. I mean, people that were kids when they grew up with the music, they got to a place where, you know, they were ready to go out on a Friday and Saturday night and try and relive some of their youth uh, and sing the songs they knew. And the economy started to flourish again. I mean, you had the dot-com bubble uh, and the touring was really where it was felt. It wasn't felt with the record sales, but, you know, you had these package tours. The band figured out they could go out with package tours and still play to 15,000 people if they put four or five of these bands in the same bill. And so you had Poison and Cinderella and Rat and Warren and Quiet Riot and Slaughter and Firehouse all teaming up uh, for these shows. And yeah, VH1 Behind the Music had a lot to do with it. Even, you know, the LA station, uh, Knack came back and you had all these greatest hit CDs. And the artists 
they were anxious to, at least some of them, to return to that style of music. Uh, Motley Crue, after the 94 album and the, the bizarre nature of Generation Swine, uh, you know, they returned to that guitar-oriented party rock with New Tattoo. Def Leppard came off of the alternative-sounding slang and did Euphoria, which was very much like Adrenalize. Uh, bon Jovi, of course, you know, they were there at the beginning. They ushered it in with Living on a Parent's Slipper and Wet. It was only so fitting that they would come in and, and do Crush and It's My Life, I think, was the third biggest single in the world that year. Yeah, that was a great one. You know, it's yeah, another I mean, good song that's a, like a newer song that's a, of the genre that sounds like it was made in that era was the Kicks uh, album. Uh, the song or the album was called Rock Your Face Off, but the song... Yeah, Love me with your top down. That is such a great song. Like, I mean, if people well, like this kind of music, wavered, right? Yeah. I mean, God bless Kicks. I mean, you want to find a good album in the '90s that stuck to the formula? Go find Kicks' show business album. Right? It was their last yeah. straw from a major record, but they didn't change at all. I mean, yep. God bless them. Uh, and certainly, when they came back with Rock Your Face Off, they again it was 2015, was it? Uh, I might not remember that correctly. Uh, again, it sounded just like Blow My Fuse or Kicks from the 80s, even mm-hmm. though it didn't have Donnie, who did most of the, the songwriting. Uh, so, yeah, you got to hand it to him. But all these fans were anxious to reunite. And, yeah. and you know, Poison got back together with CeCe DeVille. Uh, LA Guns got back together. They did Man in the Moon, Cinderella and Great White. I actually got new recording contracts, even though Cinderella, for various reasons we won't go into here, didn't get the record out. Uh, you know, Mr. Big got back together. Of course, they didn't have Paul Gilbert, but all these bands, even though with without Sebastian Bach, Skid Row got back together. And in 2000, you know, it was kind of like this rebirth. And you can go out and you could see these bands and you could hear them live on a Friday and Saturday night. And, you know, they were almost completely extinct, even though they commercially extinct, uh, mm-hmm. although a lot of them did take some downtime in the 90s. And they were they had this touring entity in the last 20 years that enabled them to make livings as a musician, right? They could go out mm-hmm. there and you, you hate to think it's all about nostalgia, although for a lot of people it is. I love new albums from these bands. And, uh, you know, as fans, hardcore fans that go to the concert, uh, you know, it's tough because you go to a Poison show and you're going to hear, God bless them, the same 12 songs you've heard. In any yeah, Poison didn't you say you stopped time. going to Poison because you said you I just did. got sick I of the same that. 10 songs? I can't take the set list anymore, right? Now, it's great for the average fan because, I mean, what are they supposed to do? I mean, I would right. love Poison to write a new album as long as it doesn't sound like Holly Weird. Uh, forgive me. Yeah, but, that was no, a bad no. one. I mean, I think even the band has to. Because I remember getting that and being all excited. Oh, a new Poison. I'm listening. I'm going, is this like the demos or something? Like, what is this production? Well, the production was awful. Right? Yeah, it just it didn't like sound it in my closet. strange. But so there's now there's all these new hair bands, right? Um, Steel Panther, I think they kind of ushered in this and they used humor, which I think was great. I love them. I don't know if you're a fan of them. I know they're in your book, but I don't know if you like see them live. Uh, you know, if you care for their humor, I think their humor is hilarious. I think the, the shtick they do in between the songs is great. And um, I got to give a, some shout outs to a couple of bands that I've had on my show, some newer bands. There's a band called All or Nothing, which yeah. uh, they're actually the backup band for Mitch Malloy, his solo band. They're, that's a great band. People should check out. There's a band, uh, True Villains. Their singer, mm-hmm. Bo, he was, on, he was on American Idol. He sounds like Stephen Piercy. And so people should check that one out. And I just had this band, Blackheart Saints. This guy, uh, their singer, Josh, he loves Guns N' Roses. And a lot of their songs are kind of right in that era too. Now, which ones you have like hardcore superstar. You've had like three of their albums in the top uh, new <laughs> hair metal artists. So you're a big fan of them. And who else do you want to give a shout out to for new bands? 
Well, I mean, people have to realize that, you know, overseas, you know, hair metal's really never gone away. It's never gone away anywhere. It's just been underground, at least commercially. Uh, but when you go to places like the Nordics or Sweden or Finland, I mean, it's almost like, you know, 1989 on the Sunset Strip. I mean, these are very commercially viable forms of music and, and it's a thriving genre there. Uh, and there's there's tons of great bands. I mean, too many to name. Uh, you know, it's certainly a hardcore superstar, though it's not really hair metal. It's more of a heavy, aggressive street metal. Uh, I'm a huge fan, of course. Uh, but bands like Reckless Love or, or Crazy Licks or Crash Diet or, you know, all these bands, Kiss and Dynamite from Germany. I mean, there's literally, I mean, people that don't think there's new music out there, uh, they, they should go go find it because yeah. it is out there every day. I mean, there's at least 20 new 80s rock inspired CDs for me to listen to in any given week. I mean, more so than I could ever try to consume, although, you know, that doesn't stop me. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Fantastic bands out there. Uh, that are carrying the torch. And I love Steel Panther, right? And they're yeah. kind of a love them or hate them thing because, you know, I mean, <laughs> it's amazing. They're embracing this music, but at the same time, they're making fun of it. And somehow, for me, at least, they're striking the right it. balance. Yeah. But it's, it's fascinating when you go to their shows because there's young people there. And how they're yeah. pulling this off, I have no idea. But it's, I mean, it is a fantastic show if you're looking for entertainment and some of that things that, you know, these musicians and bands brought us in the 80s. Uh, I love them to death. Now, some of their lyrics... <laughs> <laughs> they, they maybe maybe even a little you know too uh, you know profound for me to use a, a lack of a better word. Okay. Uh, maybe I would prefer that they do a more straight straight faced album, but maybe that would take away what makes them them for sure. Yeah. But I mean, when you listen to the music, I mean, it, it's straight out of 1989. That's it's good fantastic. stuff. Was there was there any bands that were big? Uh, would you that you would classify as hair metal bands that? that you just didn't get or you think are overrated or you're just not a, as big a fan of that you, sh you think that maybe you should be a bigger fan, but you're just not for whatever reason. I think everybody has those bands uh, for me. And again, any listeners out there, I don't mean to offend anybody, but I'll answer the question. I could never really get into Dokken, right? And that is sacrilegious because they were part of the pioneers of this. And, you know, again, they had a lot of things that made them great. I mean, George Lynch is an amazing guitarist and they had good songs that were the same as, Almost all the other songs in 1984, right? These were melodic guitar-based songs. Uh, you know, I don't know what it was that I could never really embrace. And I own all their albums and I listen to them, but for some reason, I never really just get excited about talking. So at the risk of offending anybody, uh, I'll admit, I don't know what it is. I try and re-listen to their stuff all the time. And some of it I really do like, but... I could never get into docking as much as the average person got into docking for whatever reason. But okay. That's probably the only example. Yeah. So, and then you talk about, I heard you talking about that you've talked and met some of these rock stars. Like in 2003, you had a phone conversation with Nikki six. You got to talk to Janie Lane, Sebastian, but how did you do that? Like, how did you get a phone conversation with Nikki six? Like, can I have his phone number? Cause I want to get him on my show. Like, <laughs> well, he never gave me his phone number. Um, I was writing an article for a paper at the time. It's actually a funny oh. story. Um, at the time, again, this is pre-internet. And so at the time they were re-releasing all their albums and they did it under this crucial crew moniker. And one of the albums was supersonic and demonic relics. I don't mm -hmm. know if you're familiar with it, mm -hmm. but it had a bunch of unreleased stuff on there. Oh yeah. And a friend of mine who worked for a newspaper in New Jersey at the time, he said, Hey, there's actually a different version of that with some other songs that they've never released. And of course I'm like, Oh my God, I have to have this. And he's like, it was sent to me because I'm a journalist. They wanted me to review it because that's how you got exposure in those days. And I was actually writing for a paper at the time. And I had done a review uh, that was submitted and published for uh, the, I think several around the latest one in the, in the main paper was the, the decade of decadence album all the way back in 1991. But I said, Hey, I'll reach out to their publicist. I'll let them know I want an interview. I'll probably never get one, but at least maybe they'll send me one of these uh, rare CDs, right? That's what I wanted. 
And it turned out, you know, they said, hey, sure, you can have an interview. And I was like, really? And uh, there was a couple of things that went on and I wasn't sure what was going to happen. But eventually, yeah, I wound up on the phone uh, talking with Nikki Six for almost an hour. And he was just the most down to earth, uh, you know, best guy to talk to. Uh, we had a great time. I published the article. Hopefully it got a lot of press and I, and I did him well. Uh, but that was, that was, and yeah, a lot of the other wow. folks I've met weren't any more than just, you know, some extended time at some meet and greets or some backstage finagling. Uh, I do remember meeting Janie Lane several times and mm. uh, I'm a huge, huge Janie Lane fan. I mean, I just have so much Me respect too. For him yeah. as a songwriter and as a charismatic frontman. And I even, you know, loved him as a vocalist and you know, he could sing the phone book and I'd be happy. And I, I just, I think he's just tragic every day that he's not still with us. But I do remember one specific occasion, and this was in the early 2000s when he was, you know, and of course, Dane, Janie had his demons and his struggles with alcohol, and he was trying to get sober at this time. And it was in a small bar. And of course, I spent the show in the first row, like a crazy idiot, like I always do. And I was uh, talking with him backstage. And of course, he's sober, right? And it was, it was cold, and it was dark, and it was dingy. And he was such a gentleman just trying to meet as many fans as possible. And there's nothing worse than being around a bunch of drunk people when you're sober, right? If you've ever tried it. And so he was, you know, playing a good soldier and everyone around him was drunk and someone approached him and spilled like an entire beer in his lap. And it was cold. I mean, just dumped it on him and didn't even care. And, you know, the average rock star would have just went berserk. And, you know, he just took it in stride and said, hey, it's OK. That's all right. You know, nice to meet you. Can I pose for a picture? I'll never forget that. You know, it would have just. Wow. That's crazy. Well, so I remember when I was a kid and I, you know, I, you know, you wait a month to get the new metal edge. I was a big metal edge fan. Um, and you just in hopes that there was like a small blurb about a band. You, you know, I was like, is there anything about Skid Row? Maybe there's a paragraph. And now there's so many websites and podcasts and YouTube channels. It's almost too much information. Like I can't keep up with it. Even if I wanted to, do you find yourself in the same predicament, like trying to listen and watch all these interviews and then go, go on all these websites? Or are you still just absorbing it all the time? Well, I'm a little abnormal. Like I said, I don't know what's wrong with me, but you're right. You know, most people wake up and they roll over, they grab their phone, they check the world news. I check, you know, Blabbermouth and Sleaze Rock and Brave Words and some other websites. So again, I don't know what's wrong with me. It's just my passion, right? And hopefully yeah. that's uh, what allowed me to write the book and, and have it be something valuable. Uh, but there's a lot out there to your point, right? I mean, specifically the music. I mean, I try and keep up and listen to everything, but sometimes I, I find myself with a stack of, of 20 CDs that I haven't listened to yet. And it, you know, you hate to say it's almost a chore, but it's like, oh, how am I going to get through these? There's a lot out there to digest. And uh, hopefully that just, you know, separates, you know, the cream rises to the crop. Uh, but it's difficult because not a lot of these bands get exposure. There's tremendous, fantastic music out there, but you kind of have to find it for yourself. And the beauty is you never know when you're going to find that next nugget, right? Yeah. You stumble upon this indie album that sounds like, wow. I love this. Well, right? so yeah, you list a lot of uh, the, the music in this book. There's a lot. And I'm, tr I'm going through my girlfriend walked in on me and, and I'm listening to music and, I, and she goes, you're listening to music while you read. I'm like, why? Well, I, I got to know what he's talking about. Like, he's <laughs> raving about this Nelson song that I've never, you know, I had to go on YouTube to find it because it's not even on Spotify. And I was like, wow, this actually is really good. Do, are you going to make like a playlist of all the music? Like, cause that would be cool to see. I don't know, either by year or probably by year would be the best way to do it. Or, or yeah, probably by year would it be the only way to do it. Like 1991 best hair metal songs or what? I, I don't know. Like, because it's almost, there's so many songs that you list in this. I mean, unless people are just on Spotify and going through the book, I mean, you, you can't even hear all the things while you're reading the book. Does that make sense? It does. And a lot of people um, have been kind enough to, to reach out to me and say, Hey, 
the book turned me on to some music that I never knew was out there, whether it was all the bands that did release music in the 90s and people just didn't know about because it mm -hmm. wasn't on radio or MTV or something more modern. Uh, and they've been, you know, very gracious to say, hey, I never would have known about this terrific song if I hadn't read the book. And, you know, as an author, yeah. that just warmed your heart. Oh, yeah. Um, no, the same for me, for sure. For And I haven't, like, gone back and listened to all of it either. So there's still more that I need to go back and I mean, I don't listen to some, but, like, some of them, like, then I think it was the Nelson in particular. I remember you just raving about this, like, this is the most brilliant song they ever wrote. And I was like, well, I got to hear this. And, and like the white snake flesh and blood. I mean, there's so many that I went, I mean, a lot of it I've already heard obviously, but there was a lot of stuff too that that's why I think it'd be cool if you made like a Spotify playlist or YouTube playlist or something. Okay. I'm making a note. I yeah. can see if I can get around to that. Or is there other pro like, is it, what is your next project? I mean, cause this book is like everything. Uh, what, what else can you do now? I mean, you can't write another book about hair metal. Can you, I mean, there's, you pretty much covered it all. Would there be a, a, like the, what happened to those 300 pages you deleted? Would there be like a, a, a supplement or director's cut of this book or? Well, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, it's crazy to think that the book's already this beast at 450 pages, but you're right. The first draft of this thing was 800 pages and it's really because I wanted to make it very, very comprehensive. Right? I didn't yeah. want to leave any bands out and I wanted to cover everything and make it be, you know, the encyclopedia for hair metal. And as it turned out, you, you just couldn't do it, right? Because not even the most ardent fan outside of myself maybe wants to read an 800-page dissertation uh, about hair metal, uh, not to mention the printing cost of it. I mean, you could never sell it. Uh, so cutting it down to 450 pages is really one of the most painful things I've ever done because you had to pick and choose. And you tried to stick with the bands that most people wanted to know about. At the same time, you certainly wanted to throw in some that would widen people's perspectives. And maybe mm -hmm. you cheated and threw in some personal favorites as well. Uh, but cutting out or cutting down the amount of press certain bands got was awful because you just know I get a lot of feed. The only criticisms I get from the book, and they're valid and they're wonderful because people are so passionate, is they say, hey, I'm upset because you gave this band 10 pages and my favorite band only got five pages. Right. So I'm I'm angry as a passionate fan. And, uh, you know, I actually love the criticism because I love that people are so passionate about it. But it's hard. It was hard to say you know, this band's only going to get five pages when I'd love to write 10 pages about that. So there's always room for raw mat more material. Uh, some of the things I took out, like entire chapters, uh, like I was going to go into great detail about the scene on the Sunset Strip at the time, but mm. that's been covered in other books. Yeah, that's, not to that's say true. I wouldn't want to do maybe a one-off, you know, maybe instead of 135,000 words like this book, you know, maybe 25,000 words on the Sunset Strip scene in 1988 would be a good side project. So okay. I think I'll probably dabble with some other small things, but okay. uh, no, I probably don't have another 450 page book in me. I, hopefully I got it all out here. Okay. No, you definitely did. People need to pick up this book. You can get it on Amazon. Um, it's a fascinating read. I think it's, and you wrote it. Uh, for people who don't know anything about hair metal, but also like a diehard fan like me, I'm still, you still, you know, uncovered all these gems of, uh, of, uh, bands either I've never heard of or albums from these bands that I didn't know were really good that you turned me on to. So thank you so much for doing this. I do like to end each episode, um, with a shout out to a charity. Is there a charity that you want to promote here at the end? Yes, absolutely. And thank you so much for the opportunity. Um, my wife and I are huge animal lovers. Uh, she actually owns a, a dog training company, and we have a dog that I love more than anything in life. Uh, and we work a lot with the Humane Society of Charlotte, North Carolina. And it's okay. a wonderful organization. Uh, and if you're an animal lover, uh, they could certainly use your help, and you can really make a difference in a pet's life. Okay. Is that where you are now in Charlotte? Um, just south of Charlotte. Yes. Okay. Just uh, good to know. Okay. Yeah. Cause you're such a mystery. Like you, you, there's just not a lot about your personal life. I don't know if that's on purpose, so I don't want to get too personal, but yeah, it's just like, I'm like intrigued by, I'm like, you're just this hair metal fan that wrote a 450 page book. Like, how do you do that? That's crazy. So I love it. Great book. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this interview. 
Okay. Hey, Chuck, always a pleasure speaking with other fans of the genre and yeah. being able to engage in this music that we all love. So thank you for the opportunity. Really enjoyed it. All right. Stay in touch. See you later. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. So there it is, the whole story of hair metal, but not really because you got to read the book. Uh, so don't be saying that we missed this band or that album or that song or whatever, because we're just hitting some of the interesting points in this interview. Uh, the book contains so much more, so make sure to check it out. You can order it on Amazon. Again, here it is. The title is The Spectacular Rise, Fall, and Rebirth of Hair Metal by Christopher Hilton, covering his name there. Uh, but if you enjoyed the subject matter, make sure to check out some of the other interviews that I've done many with members of the bands that we that we mentioned in this episode. And if you enjoy the show, make sure to follow me on social media and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen so that you don't miss any future episodes. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day. And remember to shoot for the moon.